the book of Daniel was written by an exile for exiles, and the book tries to get us to ask two questions. It actually tries to answer these two questions. How do we live in a foreign land, and how do we fit in here without being swallowed up? And these are the questions we need to ask, because it doesn't matter what century you're in or what country you're in. If you follow Jesus, you are a citizen of heaven and an exile on earth. And the message Daniel offers to us is this. Despite all appearances, God is in control and he gives us what we need to be faithful in exile. Even if you're just beginning to explore the Christian faith, yes, the book of Daniel is a pretty intense place to start with its wild visions and dreams, but it's also a great place to begin because Daniel will help you see your everyday life from a much better vantage point. And Daniel will also help you see more clearly what a difference faith can truly make as you live in the city of Vancouver today. As we enter into the second chapter, we're also now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. This puts us sometime around 605 to 600 BC. So we're a ways back in history. And now... Even though Nebuchadnezzar has amassed power and prestige and has established an empire over the ancient world, he can't seem to enjoy it. We join Nebuchadnezzar in a rather intimate space, his chambers, and he's startled awake. He's sweating. His heart is beating fast because he's just had a nightmare. He saw a sort of metallic, human-like statue. The head was made of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its metal and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as this statue loomed over him, a stone was cut out, but not by human hands. And this stone struck the statue and it crumbled to dust and the wind came and blew the dust away. But the stone became a mountain that filled the earth and he wakes up. Now, was it the late night falafel? Was it the wine? Probably not. Because he's been having this dream again and again, night after night after night. We don't know for how many nights, but it was happening enough that he was greatly distressed and he was sleepless. Because if he closed his eyes, would he see it again? And as we see, his anxiety is about to ripple through the city of Babylon. And yet there's Daniel the young, exiled Israelite who's been conscripted into the king's service in Babylon, even under the threats of a nightmare, uh, a nightmare plagued king, an anxious king, an erratic king, even in the atmosphere of Babylon that can be fearful and different, Daniel seeks to live differently. He's an altogether different presence than Nebuchadnezzar. He spreads peace throughout the city. And that's the idea I want us to see in our passage this morning. God has given us the promise of his kingdom so we can become a peaceful presence in exile. So if you do have a Bible, open it up to uh, Daniel. We'll be in the second chapter. We're not going to read the whole thing again in its entirety. Don't worry, but we will uh, stop in certain parts of this chapter to get a sense of what Daniel's trying to communicate to us. If you don't own a Bible, take one of ours home with you. We would love for you to have that. Everything will be on the screen too. Daniel chapter 2. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, 
I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. At first, nothing appears out of the ordinary. These specialists in psychic phenomena have appeared in Nebuchadnezzar's courts many times before. They've offered interpretations. They've offered counsel. They've offered wisdom. And in fact, throughout the ancient world, the Chaldeans were famous uh, for their mystical powers. We have all these writings that boast about what the Chaldeans could accomplish. They've got this. It's in the bag. Until things take a hard right. The king shocks his advisors. He says, if you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn from limb to limb and your houses shall be laid to ruins. Well, that escalated quickly. What do you do when the king's request leaves you helpless and exposed? Understandably, they try to gently reason with the king, but the king doubles down. He wants no tricks, no lies, no compromises, no best guesses. And so exacerbated, the Chaldeans show a candid moment of honesty, some raw honesty in verse 10. This is what they say to the king. There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Do you hear what they just confessed? They've just confessed that their hype is a facade. Their hype is a facade. They can't do it. No person can do it. Only the gods can do it, but the gods won't because they're not here on earth. It's impossible. The gods, in their perspective, are on mute. So unless Nebuchadnezzar tells them the dream, there's nothing they can do to help him. But do you see what they've said? They've said that their belief in their gods is actually just playing a game. At the end of the day, when push comes to shove, they don't believe their gods can make any difference on the ground. And this is not what a king wants to hear especially when you're on his payroll, and especially when you're insulting his gods. Nebuchadnezzar, he's already underslept. He's already riddled with anxiety. And now he erupts in a fury. He follows through on his promise to have them torn from limb to limb. And you have to understand, in Babylon, this is not just some metaphor. This is literal. And so a decree goes out. Tear him apart. Wipe them from the face of my kingdom. Their wisdom, their tricks, they're useless to me. And so the rage of the king erupts and is about to spill throughout the city. But the problem, of course, is that Daniel and his friends are now among this category of wise men. They've been conscripted into the king's service. And so the king's captain, Arioch, brings word of the decree to Daniel with a so looks like I'm going to have to kill you sort of vibe. And Daniel, before he knows the dream, before he knows the interpretation, we're told in verse 16, Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. That is a bold move. He doesn't know the dream, doesn't know the interpretation, doesn't know if God will follow through, and yet he makes the promise. You see, Daniel is bold, not because he's caught up in his own hype like the Chaldeans, not because he's so confident about his wisdom and abilities. Daniel is bold because he banks on who he knows God to be. He trusts God. 
And so he buys himself some time. But now what? Does he unravel? Does he become paralyzed by anxiety and fear? Does he become a hot mess in the face of death? Or does he run home and get his friends and pack their bags and hightail it out of Babylon before Arioch can come back and find them and have them killed? Daniel doesn't do any of those things. My impulse would be to run, hightail it out of Dodge. And I, I'm not convinced that would be wrong in every scenario. But Daniel has a peace about him. Don't get me wrong. It's not that Daniel didn't feel nervous or didn't have worries or fears about what was going on, but he carries this peace about him, even in an emotionally distressing time. And we see he has a total, totally different disposition than Nebuchadnezzar. Because even in a uh, against a threat against his life, Daniel doesn't get lost in the anxiety swirling around him. He has a peace. Instead, we read in verse 17 and 18, Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. When everything is on the line, Daniel turns to his spiritual friends and prayer, that's his strategy. That's how he faces a life or death situation head on. Unlike the Chaldeans, Daniel believes that God actually is involved in history. He believes that God listens to his people, that God hears the prayers of his people, and that God decisively can act within history. And so rather than run away from the problem or deal with it on his own, Daniel draws near to his spiritual friends and together they pray and they ask for God to show mercy. You see, too often we, we run away. We try to handle it ourselves. Or we withdraw and we hide and we wait for it to blow over. But as I said last week, as I'll say this week, and as I'll say in many weeks, this is why community groups are the backbone of this church. They are the place you can cultivate the meaningful spiritual friendships that you can rely on as you seek to discern how to live out your faith in this city. Week after week, you can meet with people and begin to discern together how you actually follow Jesus in Vancouver. You can bring your problems, the challenges you face at work, and together you can pray and begin to discern the ways of Jesus and what he would have you do. Daniel reminds us to lay down our independence and to seek interdependence instead. The story continues in verse 19 through 23. I love this. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belongs wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you've made known to us the king's matter. Sounds like Daniel's praying a collect, doesn't he? And we learn something beautiful about who God is here. God is in control over history. 
and God reveals mysteries. That is a major point in this chapter. God is in control over history and God reveals mysteries. What was previously veiled or hidden or indiscernible, God makes known and he, he appears, he answers. And while there's so many things we could highlight in Daniel's prayer, there's one truth that I want us to see. God knows what is in the darkness. Did you see that? God knows what is in the darkness. And I have a sense for some of us, that's all we need to hear this morning. God knows what is in the darkness. And that can have one of two effects on you, maybe more, but at least one of two. It's either scary or it's comforting. It's scary because God knows what's in the darkness. God knows what you're trying to hide because he sees you through and through. God knows what's in your heart, the unspoken thoughts and judgments that you keep to yourself, the unspoken desires that you love to entertain but show to no one. God knows what you've done in the darkness, the actions you may have taken, the things that you do that you never tell anyone about. God knows. It can be scary. It can also be comforting. God is not unaware or oblivious to the struggle we face in our life. He's not blind to the reality of what it means to live in an anxious time. He's not blind to our suffering or hurt or the threats against our very existence. Daniel obviously found great comfort in this truth. God is not on mute, as the Chaldeans suggest. And God is not blind. God sees the darkness of Babylon. He knows about the decree and the death threat. He sees the danger Daniel faces. And God sees you too. You are not alone in the dark. God reveals this mystery to Daniel. Daniel worships, and only then does he enter into the king's court. I love this. Daniel first visits the true king before any appointment with an earthly king. May that be our practice too. Before we figure out how to serve our job well or how to engage in school well or how to love people well, may we first draw near to God and have an encounter with his grace. May we draw near to our spiritual friendships. May we pray and discern how we can become a peaceful presence in the city. Daniel arrives and Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar wastes no time or words, unlike your pastor. He gets straight to the point in verse 26. Tough sell. Come on, people. <laughs> verse 26. Are you able to make known to me the dream that I've seen in its interpretation? Daniel replies, no wise man, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Again, we see Daniel's boldness here, don't we? The wisdom of your wise, it's failed you. Your enchanters can't conjure anything up. Your magicians can't give you a spell to help you sleep. Your astrologers can't even read the stars. But my God speaks. Your God might be on mute, but my God reveals mysteries. What an opening! 
But Daniel also knows that Babylon and its king have a tendency to celebrate humanity rather than worship God, that they're going to see Daniel and celebrate this amazing thing that he can do and miss that it is God who's working through him. And so Daniel offers a point of clarification. Look what he says. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. And with that clarification, Daniel finally shares the dream in verses 31 through 35. He says, you had a dream about a human-like statue. Now, it's easy to imagine Nebuchadnezzar's suspicion here. Perhaps he said, oh yeah, lucky guess. Tell me, Daniel, what was the head made of? Gold. Well, what about the chest and arms? Silver. The middle and the thighs? Bronze. The legs? Iron. The feet? Trick question. Mixed of iron and clay. You know, like mind blown. Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't know. Like, how could you know? Of course, that's not how it happened. Daniel simply told him the whole dream. And he gets every detail right. Especially the most important part, the part about the stone, which was cut out by no human hand. And it strikes and shatters this image. And the image is blown away by the wind. And Daniel describes how the stone that struck this image becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. He doesn't let Nebuchadnezzar catch up. He just moves straight into the interpretation in verses 36 and 45. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he's given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. That's a good place to start. You may have noticed that the statue is con constructed from the best elements and slowly decreases to lesser elements. And Daniel says, Nebuchadnezzar, you and your kingdom, you're the gold, baby. You're the best part of this statue. It turns out the rest of the statue represents kingdoms that will only come after Nebuchadnezzar's reign, after his life. Daniel continues, another kingdom, and he highlights, inferior to yours shall arise after you. And yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. Now, throughout the century, this talk of the kingdoms and the elements has led to a lot of interesting interpretations. This is how you discern the end times, apparently. And there are as many hypothetical uh, kingdoms for each element as there have been nations throughout history. Sometimes Christians can get so caught up in this that this is all they talk about. If you've been in the church long enough, you've had this experience, right? You meet someone within 20 seconds, they go, so what do you think about Daniel 2? What do you mean Daniel 2? Well, did you read the news? No. Did you read the news? Yes. Haven't you thought about the iron and the clay? Don't you see it in the times? No. <laughs> Look, I don't think it's wrong to try to engage this passage and see what God is saying here. Traditionally, the four kingdoms have been identified this way. Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, in that order. But do you see what God does not provide in this interpretation to Daniel? He does not provide names of kingdoms. 
And perhaps this is because something much more significant is being communicated. As one commentator points out, we should take notice the statue is of human design and making, just like the Tower of Babel. Only here, instead of brick and butamen, this monument is made of precious metals. It's a statue of a human made by human hands. So whatever earthly kingdoms this may represent, all of them have one thing in common, human hands. All of them ultimately exalt humanity and perpetuate this era, era of Babel. They're celebrating humanity rather than worshiping God. That's what every single kingdom has in common. And in light of this truth, an eternal point is being made and one that we should not miss, one that we should take to heart. It is the main point of this dream. It is the main thrust of the interpretation. Verse 44 and 45. This is what Daniel says. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. In sum, there is only one kingdom that will never be destroyed. There is only one kingdom greater than every earthly kingdom. Only one kingdom that will stand forever. And it's not yours, Nebuchadnezzar. Cities come and go. Nations rise and fall. Empires and kingdoms will not last. The only kingdom that has lasting significance is the kingdom of God. And one day it will fill the entire earth. That's the promise. The king is obviously... Impressed. Something remarkable has just taken place. Daniel told him his dream and the interpretation. Look at verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you've been able to reveal this mystery. Nebuchadnezzar is flat on his face. This is a humble posture for a king, but looks can be deceiving. At first glance, it looks like Nebuchadnezzar has had a conversion experience, but let's not get carried away yet. That's not going to take place until something much more significant happens in his life in chapter 4. Yes, Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges the supremacy of God here. Yes, he acknowledges that God reveals mysteries. But that's where he stops. Nowhere does Nebuchadnezzar worship this God or offer his life to this God. What does he do? He pays homage to Daniel. He makes an offering of incense to Daniel. This is a political move. He's buying Daniel's favor. He seems to have missed the forest for the trees. Because this whole chapter, if we step back and look at it, this whole chapter is surprisingly about Nebuchadnezzar. Do you see that? God gave him the dream about an everlasting kingdom. And as Daniel even said, God revealed the meaning to Daniel, not for Daniel's sake, but so that the king could understand the meaning of the dream. Nebuchadnezzar is the focus of this passage. How incredible is that? It reminds us the vision and hope of God's everlasting kingdom 
is not just for God's people. Up at this point in Israel's history, they've had kind of small hints that there might be an everlasting kingdom around the bend. This is one of the most prolific expressions of this everlasting kingdom in the Old Testament. And who does God reveal it to? A pagan king who's yet to believe in him. God's kingdom is not just for his people. God's kingdom is for everyone who is yet to believe in the king. We should never lose sight of that. So yes, Nebuchadnezzar, he's acknowledged God, but only to the extent that it serves him and suits his own purposes. Only to the extent that it allows him to still worship himself and his own ideals and agendas. His ultimate concern is power and his kingdom and his legacy. As our passage started out, Nebuchadnezzar, he is anxious, he was distraught, he was suspicious, he was unreasonable, he was angry, he was furious, he was cruel. And it appears the source of all this anxiety and discontent was the fear of losing his kingdom, was the fear that his kingdom might not last his lifetime. But his rage finally settles when he's assured that his kingdom will last at least for as long as he's alive. And it seems tragic to me, honestly. Because Nebuchadnezzar settles for temporary comfort instead of the promise of an eternal and everlasting kingdom. He sets his hope on what he can have in this life instead of his hope on an everlasting kingdom that he's been shown and invited to inherit. But I think we have to admit, many of us are much more like Nebuchadnezzar than we, we want to admit, aren't we? We build our lives around things and ideals and goals other than God. And when we make something other than God our highest aim, that's what we're worshiping. The late author, David Foster Wallace, uh, wrote a book called Infinite Jest. Anybody? Okay, some people. He understood this better than most. He wasn't a Christian, but he understood that humanity worships. Period. It doesn't matter if you're an atheist or you're religious. You worship. But what we choose to worship can either give us life or eat us alive. Here's Wallace in his own words. If you worship money and things, if they're where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. Never feel you're enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you'll always feel ugly. Worship power. You'll end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. And on and on he could go. The truth that is essential for us to grasp in this passage is this. We will never have lasting peace until we've really seen and acknowledged that this empire of ours, whatever it may be, it must crumble to give way to the kingdom of God. Because if all earthly empires are going to crumble, if nations are going to come and go, if kingdoms as powerful as Babylon are going to be reduced to dust, you better believe your little kingdom of you is going to crumble when the kingdom of God is fully revealed. The God of heaven who reveals mysteries has unveiled the greatest mystery of all, the way to an everlasting kingdom. 
And the passage stresses, it is not by the work of human hands. You can't build this kingdom. It is a work of God within history. Daniel built his life upon this kingdom, this vision of the stone. He took comfort in this promise that one day it would fill the whole earth. And once again, we see God gives his people what they need to be faithful in exile. And what God gave Daniel in this chapter is a vision of an everlasting kingdom, a kingdom that's truly worth living for. And this is how Daniel could become a peaceful presence in Babylon. This is how he could seek peace for Nebuchadnezzar and seek peace for the wise men, seek peace for the city. Because his heart was set on a kingdom without end kingdom of peace. And even in the waiting, even as we wait for that kingdom to arrive, Daniel shows us that even the promise of this kingdom brings about peace, a deep and lasting and abiding peace. But how? How is a promise that powerful? Roughly 500 years after this moment, Daniel unveils the dream, interprets it for the king. Babylon's gone. Persia's gone. Greece is gone, and Rome is on the stage. And Jesus Christ appears. God, the God of heaven, who reveals mysteries, enters into humanity's form. He enters into history, perhaps the greatest mystery of all, fully God, fully man. And as Jesus steps onto the stage of world history and begins to preach his gospel, what does he say? Mark writes this, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The stone that Nebuchadnezzar dreamt about, this kingdom that will be everlasting, Jesus says it's here. It's arrived. If you look at me, you're going to see what this kingdom is like. And when we look to the life of Jesus, what is the kingdom like? The sick are healed. Sinners are forgiven. Justice is is proclaimed, captives are liberated. It's amazing. And the kingdom starts to spread and people start to believe in Jesus and their lives are changed. And he's proclaiming this promise that God's everlasting kingdom is going to establish peace like a river throughout the earth. That this kingdom will put an end to death, will put an end to suffering. And in this kingdom, every tear will be wiped away. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. The stone is here and it is crushing these kingdoms. But then Jesus is crucified. And before his last breath, we read in every gospel, darkness covered the land. But wasn't the stone supposed to crush the little kingdoms? And isn't Jesus supposed to be that stone and yet he appears crushed? Did Daniel get his interpretation wrong? Is he off the mark? Did he miss something? Do you remember Daniel's prayer? God is in control. God reveals mysteries and God knows what is in the darkness. Jesus entered into the darkest darkness, the depths of suffering, the darkness of injustice, the stains of sin, the black end of death, God knows what is in the darkness, not because he's all-knowing, but because Jesus entered into the very depths of our darkness on the cross. And he's a peaceful presence there. He enters into our darkness with peace. Everything we've hidden in the dark, everything we're afraid might be exposed about who we truly are within us, it's seen, 
and forgiveness is offered. The darkness of the world, the news that is too horrible to look at sometimes, it's overcome with the light. And we're promised comfort even in the dark. That's what Jesus tells us. I will send you my Holy Spirit. That's the promise. And what's the Spirit's name in John's gospel? The Comforter. Jesus enters into our darkness with peace and with comfort. The kingdom of God is at hand, he says, and it is a kingdom of peace. It's here. And yet, Jesus says it's like a seed. It's like yeast. You can't always see it. It's not always fireworks. Sometimes you'll wonder where it is, but it's at work. And the kingdom is spreading and growing and the promise is that it will fill the earth like a mighty mountain. This kingdom of God will be a reality, not by our efforts, but by the work of God when Christ returns and fulfills his promise of an everlasting kingdom that reduces all of these empires we've tried to construct into dust and establishes something so much better. So when we're rooted and grounded in Jesus, when we're rooted in the peace of his kingdom, that's how we become a peaceful presence in our city. Because our hearts are set on a kingdom that lasts forever, a kingdom marked by a peace that cannot be robbed by anything. Because true peace only comes from an indestructible kingdom and from a king who knows the darkness we face and who gives us what we need to be a peaceful presence even in exile. That's the promise. And this kingdom is at hand. And the invitation is to repent and believe in the gospel.